This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. And my guest on the podcast today is Kyle Mathias, the assistant brewmaster for the Pilot Brewery at uh, Deschutes Brewing here in Bend, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I want to thank the uh, the folks of Deschutes for bringing us out here and uh, supporting uh, this episode of the podcast. Uh, you know, really appreciate it. Uh, also, as the uh, brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. Thinking outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. They're big enough to produce and small enough to care. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. Old Orchard knows that a strategic seasonal release calendar means higher margins, increased taproom traffic, and secured shelf space for your brand. That's why they collaborate with countless breweries on product development conversations year-round. With unique flavors like watermelon, rhubarb, pineapple, and plum, the possibilities are endless. Get your Old Orchard sample kit with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com brewer. As always, I just want to remind you that uh, Craft Room brings all access subscriptions, give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all access subscribers, premium content, and an all access exclusive merchandise item. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and join now. So, Kyle. Yeah. Um, this innovation process and program at Deschutes, and I, I spent the entire day touring the brewery yesterday, spending time with you all, working on some other stuff, uh, building some of their content. Um, the moment I saw this uh, innovation brewery, pilot brewery, down uh, at the front of the the brew house, underneath the the towering large <laughs> uh, uh, fermenters in the in the the main cellar, uh, I was just instantly blown away. You've got this insanely killer system um, that it would be the envy of most other breweries um, that allows you this kind of crazy flexibility to uh, experiment on a pretty significant scale. You know, not just for a brewery your size, but for a brewery of any size because uh, you know of how often it is. Talk to me a little bit about um, the design of this innovation brewery and uh, you know, and then let's kind of talk about what that means in terms of practical application you know, to, to Deschutes and what, what you all are able to kind of learn from that. Just, but give me a, a kind of, you know, for folks that haven't seen it, yeah. um, kind of walk through what it is and, uh, you know, and, and how it works. Yeah, for sure. So uh, just some basics about the system. It's a three barrel Eson Huber brew house and fermenter cellar of 13 fermenters and seven bright tanks. And the brew house was designed to at least somewhat mimic our 150-barrel Hoopman system as far as automation uh, is concerned. Uh, but the, the kind of the unique thing about the brew house is that uh, seven-vessel system, and we have mash tun, louder tun. It is ton. a seven-vessel, yep. three-barrel system. Yep, yep. Pretty dynamo. <laughs> Definitely right. some stainless envy there uh, for a lot of folks. But uh, mash tun, louder tun pre-run tank and then that's where things get kind of interesting in the sense that we can then split that 
uh, wort stream into two separate wort streams. So we, then we have two kettles, two whirlpools, two wort chillers, so on and so forth, which, you know, allows us to really speed up time of development for new products right, right. Uh, and do pretty cool side-by-side trials, whether we're testing out hops, yeast, fermentation parameters, whatever that might be. And then, you know, moving to the cellar, we have those 13 fermenters, which were designed to be dimensionally similar to uh, the big granddaddies above them, which are 1,300 barrel Zeman tanks. So we looked at those, the dimensions of those tanks and tried to scale that down as, as close as possible to get uh, get closer to the you know fermentation parameters of those big cellars so that we can mimic uh, uh, flavor. And then bright tanks, same story there too, just making sure we're, we're saying, saying the same dimensions. But uh, yeah, and then considering we can brew side-by-side beers on the same day, those get to bright on the same day as well, put them in front of our sensory panel and teams to taste them, same age, and you're really just looking at one one small difference to determine which way to take things. Because you can kind of split that word stream out, you can really do side-by-side A-B tests on you know small parameters you know, across those various pieces. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's your full-time job to operate yep. this. You know, you are a full-time brewmaster who does nothing but this kind of innovation brewing, pilot brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, how often do you brew? How often do I brew? I'm in there at least once a week. And yeah. we have a team of six other folks who are in there helping me out as well. How many brews go through that system in a given year? Uh, let's see. Last year, I think we did about, oh man, uh, 140 or so, which is definitely, you know, helped out by the fact that we have those two word streams. So, that's uh, it's a pretty amazing kind of uh, test process for uh, for any brewery. Um, you know, a lot of folks, even if you're brewing on a you know a five barrel or a seven barrel system, mm-hmm. you know, brewing that many, you know, no one has the kind of bandwidth to brew test brews at that right. kind of scale. Right. Um, so, looking at that, um, I mean, that's a major investment for a company like uh, Deschutes to get yep, involved. For in. sure. Um, I mean, a massive one, and not and you know, putting it right there in the cellar so that people who are walking in for brew house tours, you know, see it as one of the first things they see and lining up all those seven vessels in the brew deck across that kind of front of the building right here. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty bold kind of statement mm-hmm. to make about uh, how you all are focusing on, on brew tests. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're definitely, definitely in it and definitely pushing that thing to its limits. And, you know, it's, it's been really nice just in the sense that, you know, we can take some pretty big risks on, you know, since considering it's such a small system and, uh, if, if they don't turn out fail fast, you know, and, and change direction quickly as long, you know, in the time it takes for, you know, beer to get brewed and be in the bright tank, uh, you know, we have some information on which way we want to go. Yeah. Um, and this has been kind of key to some of your new product development. When I, we were talking yesterday, uh, I know Veronica Vega mentioned that, uh, you know, new products in any given year, as much as 20% of the revenue for a company like mm-hmm. Deschutes, which is a pretty huge number for a brewery that makes a lot of kind of classic, well-known, respected, you know, brands that are out there at a larger scale out in the market. Um, that was a much larger percentage for, for these new products. And it has led to things like the, you know, the fresh series that you guys do yep. kind of building on fresh squeeze, taking it in the kind of hazy realm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the development process for, uh, you know, for some of those fresh beers. Yeah. So, uh, those, those beers, I get, I guess to, to start, we sort of have two different paths of new product development and those, Fresh family beers would fall in what I sort of call the strategic path of uh, beer development. And what I mean by that is, you know, we look kind of at what the market's doing and 
our own portfolio and compare and contrast those two and kind of see where we can develop something new to fit uh, both those needs. And so that's kind of where the fresh family comes from. And that'll get put in front of our strategic beverage team to determine what those brands are, what the numbers look like, which brand styles we think would do well in there. And then I sort of take that information and, you know, get working on a recipe and a brew and so you have a broad outline, like, hey, we, yeah. we could probably use a double IPA, you know, exactly. kind of, you know, fit for, you know, that's that's what our our people are asking for, and accounts are asking for, and then you, you can kind of say, okay, if that's you know what people want, where we need to fill it in, now we go figure out what that's going to be. Yep, exactly. So yeah, like if if word comes down that we're looking to make a double IPA, I'll get that on the schedule as soon as possible, and then uh, once that beer is ready to be tasted, we'll take it to our new product development team, which consists of QA. Uh, purchasing, brewing, sales, marketing, all, you know, folks from all across the company to then taste that beer and sort of, you know, determine, is this the direction we want to go? Do we think that we can market this? Are there any sort of red flags that are getting raised if we were to scale this from a QA perspective? Anything unique about process or purchasing that we need to be aware of? And then once I get the feedback from there, it's either, all right, we have our recipe or, you know, sort of, back to the brew house, make a couple tweaks, do it again. How many iterations, you know, for something like your fresh hazy or a little squeezy, you know, would you go through uh, before you guys lock a recipe and kind of move forward with that? Yeah. So it totally depends sort of, uh, I would say the largest thing that depends on is, you know, how clear the picture is from the get go of what we're trying to do. Um, Something like little squeezy uh, was, a bit of a process. I want to say it was something like 15 to 20 different brews that we did uh, on that. Um, largely because the main focus on that beer was making a very hot forward beer without utilizing any sort of dry hopping process. So we were trying no to dry re- hopping, no okay. dry hopping. Yep. Um, just from a fermentation cellar capacity sure. sort of issue at that point. Um, so yeah, 15 to 20 brews on a little squeezy or something like fresh haze. I think that was really only like four brews or something. Mm. So it was pretty quick. And, you know, because of that split word stream and the small scale, you know, we really feel comfortable taking risks and um, making decisions we might not make, you know, at a 50 barrel to 150 barrel scale. So um, it's definitely, definitely helps speed things up. So, and I, I would, I would say that early on in my, in this position, you know, it was taking much longer and we've sort of, we've, we've really refined that process and it's become relatively quick now to get a new product up and ready to go. You say you refine the process. You just now you understand more of the parameters, and you don't make some of the mistakes that you just made. What are some of the the kind of things that you don't do anymore that you figured out you don't need to? You know, they're going to be dead ends. Yeah, it was just yeah learning the brew house, and because because at that time when we were you know we were sort of uh, optimizing slash commissioning and trying to develop new product at the same time. So uh, right, and this thing came up and up online in twenty eighteen, but really only got fully functional last year in 2019. Yeah, I would say towards the end of 2018, we had a pretty rock okay. and rolling. Um, cool, cool. But yeah, we started developing brands like Dashutes much earlier than that. And so yeah, it was a learning process with the brew house as well as just, you know, again, learning better how to communicate from, you know, strategic beverage team to brewing about what it is that we, what, that we wanted to deliver on for this project. And so uh, we've definitely streamline those uh, avenues for sure. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that kind of little squeezy process. I mean, I know that, uh, that whole category of low calorie 
hazy, fruity, soft IPA is exploding for everybody right now. And everyone's rushing into that kind of product category. Um, you know, there's some serious challenges, you know, mm-hmm. when making that kind of beer to provide that kind of hops character, especially now that you mentioned that you're doing it all without dry hopping. Um, that creates a whole nother element of, uh, you know, of, of difficulty in that kind of thing. When you're talking about building a, a beer that's so small and so light, mm-hmm. but also needs to have that kind of body, um, Talk to me about some of the levers that you pull to kind of achieve that in a successful way. Are we, are we talking a little squeezy or, yeah, or wowza? Oh, you've got two in that category. <laughs> wow, so wowza is the wowza is the low cal oh, hazy, okay, okay. little squeezy, not necessarily low okay. calorie, but gluten reduced. Talk to me about wowza. wowza. Sorry. Yeah, 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 no worries. Um, so yeah, that one is dry hopped. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, levers to pull there. I would say it starts with the mash and making sure that that mash pH is low enough because it's such a small grain bill and a low yeah. play-doh wort that you're not you know creeping up into that you know high ph range towards the end of runoff to you know keep keep from pulling those polyphenols and tannins out of the malt to yeah. create astringency so it starts there uh, as well as developing a grist bill that's gonna give you that haze and you know that soft mouth feel uh, and then from there uh kettle hops you know, little to none, just because you really, really don't want right. any, any bitterness coming uh, from that at all. And then, you know, we use, it's kind of been well documented that we use uh, chicory root to help sort of give a little bit of body with, you know, nominal calories to keep it huh. within that, uh, that under that hundred calorie number. Right. And then chicory root. And so yep. that's a, yeah. And I've, I've, we actually, in the last issue of craft beer and brewing magazine talked uh, monk fruits, another yeah. kind of ingredient that folks are using, and uh, and uh, you know the Weldworks folks with Fitbits are brewing it that way. <laughs> um, you know, using the, and stevia, using some of these kind of natural sweeteners to that are low or no calorie. Yeah, uh, it's a little kind of tricky move for those. It is. Um, you know, what do you find that that adds? Is it just that kind of body or that you know? Yeah, it's it's basically just a little bit of that more body that you might find in you know your your typical six seven percent yeah uh, hazy ipa but i mean definitely you know part of it being a four percent low calorie beer is that you know you don't want it to exactly mimic that mouthfeel or that body just because you don't want it to you know have that satiating effect so right uh trying to bring back some of the body but not maybe not necessarily all of it right right um in terms of hops how you know how do you go for for something like that i mean obviously the goal is something lightly fruity but Mm -hmm. also yeah, it needs to have a little, just a little bit of bitterness, but a soft bitterness to kind of balance out some of that. Um, you know, are, are there hops you guys lean towards? Yeah, so one of them that we lean towards in that one was Kalista, which is very low alpha and very sort of general fruity berry type of hop. So really yeah. sort of refreshing uh, hop bouquet. Uh, but also leaned on El Dorado for some fruitiness, and then Citra to. Uh, really drive home that like hey this is a this is a hazy ipa because you know every hazy ipa has citra. Have citra, <laughs> yeah. citra mosaic so uh yeah i wanted to keep sort of true to what bigger hazy ipas were but then also take into account that this is a, you know a 20 bu beer a very light body and it's got to be able to uh, have you know stand up to those hops with you know somewhat of the malty and body like for to uh, be drinkable yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about hops because I think uh, you know, as we were talking yesterday, going through that pile of brewery, I, you know, I noticed you all are doing some side by side hops testing, and uh, you know, and, and I want to kind of delve into what you've learned through some of that process. Uh, but before we do that, 
The founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. And now we have a special message from Pabst Brewing Company. Out of the West, a storm surprised. Swept down on Captain Pabst. That mariner and gentleman, his actions swift and fast. He sailed the seabird against the throws, routing twain wind and fear. He took haste to protect his kin, but the port was far from near. Pabst's intuition proved him right and bore a friendly coast. The mighty seabird crashed aground. And to that, we raise a toast. For while the seabird indeed was lost, safe were kin and crew. And without this mighty ship to steer, Captain Pabst began to brew. Captain Pabst, Seabird IPA, exclusively available in Wisconsin and Chicago. Uh, thank you for that interlude, uh, entertaining <laughs> interlude from uh, pa- Captain Pabst and uh, the Pabst Brewing Company. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, hops trials. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, we we've we touched on a whole bunch of things yesterday as we were kind of walking through, and I'm I'm trying to you know drill through them in my mind right now. Um, you know, and I think we also want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of. Uh, you know, acid, you know, brewing with different yep. acids and uh, kind of approaching that in the brewing process. But let's start with talking about, um, you know, some of the hops trials that you've been sure. doing. One of the nice things about having this kind of system, the split wart stream, is that you can, you know, you can test different, uh, you know, even, uh, late hot side or actually all hot side, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of functions. You can test, uh, you know, obviously different dry hopping streams. Everyone can do that generally if they've got small enough tanks and right. multiples. But, um, you know, you can test different whirlpool temperatures. You can test all sorts of other variables. So talk to me a little bit about, about some of these, uh, uh, some of the hop tests and trials you've been doing. And then, uh, you know, some of the interesting things that you guys have kind of learned in the process. Yeah, well, one of the first things we did with uh, hop trials was, just that active fermentation dry hopping versus your standard end of fermentation dry hopping and yeah. kind of seeing what that does. And, you know, we, that was with Wowza and we found that, you know, our panel preferred the, the character that was lent from the active dry hopping process. So that was one of the first things, uh, from pilot, from a hop standpoint that really sort of dictated our production process, which was pretty cool to see. When you say they preferred it, you know, does there, did they put words to it? Could they describe it? And, uh, you know, what did they sense out of this? So what was it had to be more than just a, Hey, I like this more than this one. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I would say looking at the numbers, you know, you might not see statistical significance, uh, but there was subtle differences, you know, whether that be a little bit more berry character, a little bit more tropical, a little bit fruitier that, you know, our panel felt, uh, was the proper direction for that, that scale up. Um, so yeah, just kind of looking at those scaled uh, hop attributes and making the decision from there. And for a, a you know a large scale production brewery doing something like moving into active 
uh, dry hopping during you know fermentation. I mean, that's a major procedural thing yep. that the entire brew house was not built or designed for. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and then, in, you know, in terms of kind of impact to yeast harvesting and, and every other element of the production process there, uh, I mean, you have to kind of create entire new processes to go do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the way that we have approached dry hopping in the past is using uh, a skid that will you know, we can dose hops while we're recirculating the beer. And, you know, it's a totally different story when you're doing that with actively fermenting foamy, croisoning (laughs) beer versus finished beer, essentially. Uh, So there's been some learning there and it probably will be some adjustments operationally to how we tackle that sort of thing. Uh, Then, yeah, to your point about yeast harvesting, um, it raises a challenge for sure and making sure that you have brands that either use that uh, yeast strain in a more traditional way or, you know, using blend batches of those active dry hop brands that are, you know, dry hopped post fermentation and then blended with those active dry hop products. Yeah. Are you all public about the yeast that you use in your hazy IPAs? Um, I don't know if it's out there or not, but, um, you know, it's pretty similar to what most other folks are using. (laughs) (laughs) I got you. There's a couple of choices there. Yeah. 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 No, fair, fair enough. Um, I, we tasted a, uh, I guess it was a, a strata uh, test, I think that you uh, had Mm -hmm. in the tanks right there. Talk to me a little, and you were mentioning something about, uh, you know, how you found you're testing pH levels and how that impacted, uh, kind of hops expression. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you found in that kind of that kind of realm. Yeah. So the experiment we did there was, you know, it's pretty common practice for a lot of brewers when they're brewing hazies to pre-acidify somewhere in the hot side, whether that be kettle or whirlpool. Yeah. And, you know, we hadn't really played around too much with that. And so decided to run a trial with a hazy double IPA, um, looking at that. And what we did was brewed one, just sort of standard, um, hopped on the hot side, normally dry hopped, active and post fermentation. So double dry hopped. And then the other wort line, the only difference between the recipe was some phosphoric acid dosed to the whirlpool uh, to reduce pH and didn't quite hit the pH that we wanted, um, but was perhaps even more insightful because the pH drop was not as much as anticipated. I would think it was only around you know 0.2 pH unit difference in the finished beer, but the mouthfeel of that product was definitely much crisper didn't linger on the palate, wasn't quite as soft as the standard non-acidosed double IPA. So that pH made it less soft, but also kind of dried up and cleaned up quicker? Yep, yep. How does that impact how you, uh, you know, design beers in the future? I mean, I guess there are pros and cons of that, depending on what you're looking for from a brewing perspective. Exactly. So it's kind of interesting because that was one of those uh, meetings where we were tasting those two beers and it was like, okay, well, what is the intention of this beer? So this, the beer that I'm talking about is bulk phase, which we're actually doing a small release of here pretty soon at the end of February. But you know, that beer is sort of meant to be meant to be pretty sweet. And so we decided to go with the non acidosed version because we wanted that sweetness, that full mouth feel. Um, and by no means was the, the acid dosed version, you know, super light bodied or anything like that, but just yeah. definitely less so than the not than the non acid dosed. So um, I think, yeah, it totally goes back to just intention of the product. And sure. now that we have that knowledge, it's just kind of another lever, lever to pull as far as ingredients are concerned. Talk to me a little bit about bulk phase. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, I, I, it's, it's not out yet, but it's coming out. Yep. And uh, it's kind of a, a cheeky take on, uh, you know, the uh, the entire hazy IPA style. Yeah, so sort of 
it, it was born out of Wowza, uh, and it was just kind of a joke after or on, after shift over beers with uh, another brewer, Tanner, who helps out in the pilot plant as well as on the production floor. And uh, we just were kind of joking about how it would, you know, be fun to develop the antithesis of the locale sort of craze that's going on right now. So high calorie, I think it clocks in somewhere around like 280 calories or something like that. <laughs> Lactose, yeah, five yeah. pound per barrel hops. Uh, just big, 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 big. Um, so that's kind of where the name bulk phase comes in from that workout realm of just getting big. Um, and yeah, we just kind of decided to brew lots it. Lots of protein. Lots of protein, lots of carbs. Just decided to brew it on a whim um, and throw, I think it's something like seven different varieties of hops at it. Um, so everything was just kind of egregious and over the top, but still uh, still made and came out to be a well-balanced beer. It's a uh, you know playful and anti-trend and that yeah. kind of yeah. uh, let's let's not just race to the lowest calorie kind of you know approach there, um, you know but but still fun and there are plenty of people that absolutely love that kind of beer. Right. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, are there any other kind of hops tests or, or heads to heads uh, you know and kind of process things that you've learned from recently? Um, we actually have a beer that's um, just about to finish up fermentation where we were looking at just the difference between Sabro and then Experimental 472, which is a Sabro sister. Um, and just from a rub, uh, it seemed just kind of like a juicier Sabro. But, um, and it kind of seems like it's going that way too during fermentation, but we'll find out here probably in the next week or two once we transfer that beer, how it actually finishes up. But that'll be an interesting one to see. Uh, how Sabro and that compare. So that's the most recent thing that we've done with as far as, you know, such sort of a head to head trial of two different hops. For you all as a brewery, you also you know, have to uh, concern yourself with how you scale beers and yeah. make beers, at the, you know, to uh, get out there across all the markets that you, you know, you're in. And so that kind of, uh, you know, focus on ingredients and how many you're buying. And I mean, it does matter. You yeah. know, have, have you found some efficiencies? You know, I, I think there is. You know, it's one thing when you're brewing a 15 barrel batch to get some citra on from the spot market and you know make a citra IPA. It's another yeah. thing to find enough citra at the scale and the quality you know that you might need to make uh, you know something like uh, you know one of one of your IPAs that's then distributed in uh, you know measured in the tens of thousands of barrels mm-hmm. potentially. Um, talk to me about like you know what you've learned about maintaining uh, you know uh, finding ways to you know creatively. Uh, mix ingredients to kind of achieve some consistency and, uh, you know, and uh, products that can kind of scale like that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we definitely look to what we have first, you know, and so we're, we're considering the intention of the beer, looking at the raw materials that we have on hand and what we think we can pull from to, you know, hit that intention, nail it. Um, but if we don't feel that we have those on hand, we certainly will look to, you know, either get into contracts for later down the road or spot by some. Um, but in a way it also, you know, sort of makes you look to, look to hops or look to ingredients that you might not otherwise and kind of find them all over again, you know? Sure, so, sure. um, and that's something that's happened with like hop, like Chinook, which is just sort of, you know, it, we was every day West coast IPA and kind of fell out of favor for the more like fruity, juicy hops, but coming back again. And it's one of my kind of most underrated hops, um, in them. Uh, so is there a way that you like to use it and, uh, or that you all found that kind of brings out some of the, the more fun characters in the hop. Yeah, I, I like it for dry hopping yeah. in, in small amounts. I think a little bit goes a long way to give that sort of pithy, grapefruit, grassy sort yeah. of dank aroma. But um, it's been fun to re- reestablish that. But 
as far as you know, then scaling products, um, I'll look to to brands that are going to be perhaps a little bit smaller to sort of to tip dip our toes in the water of ingredients that we might not have on hand to see kind of how they perform at scale. Yeah, because you know, while we're while flavor matching is certainly possible from pilot to to scale, there's just obvious differences of making that big of a leap of you know a fifty fold leap right. in production size to see how an ingredient's going to perform. So even though your fermenters are the same uh, uh, dimensions, uh, dimensions yeah. as your larger <laughs> ones, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so in that way, you know, we're sort of hedging our bets, and it's like right, right. it might be that we need you know a couple boxes of strata or something, for instance, and we can right. do a production batch with that before we go all in on you know making a big contract. So. Just sort of trying to make sure, you know, A, we're using what we have, and then B, when it's not, we don't have what we need to just sort of uh, be smart about how we're doing that. You also, you know, it's something we actually didn't talk about before, but you actually have an intermediate also, intermediate step in that kind of innovation process where you go from pilot brewery where you can, you know, put out a few sixtals of something to then you've got uh, pubs in Portland, you've got a pub here in Mm -hmm. in, uh, in Bend. Uh, and so, you know, it's with 20 barrel systems that you can also, you know, um, kind of scale up and brew some right. intermediate batches, see how those perform, see how your customers, you know, take to them. Uh, and then you guys have a, the process to kind of bring back that learning, uh, you know, on a kind of regular basis. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, once a beer comes out of pilot that we've deemed like has gotten good reception, whether it be from our in- internal folks or tasting room or what, what have you. Uh, we'll usually kick it to one of the pubs to brew up on a larger scale just to see how it fares, you know, over a longer period of time because you know, four sixtals doesn't last you very long. Right, right. Um, and, you know, we'll take what we learned from the pilot batch, perhaps make a couple tweaks to the pub batches sure. and then um, taste those again and sort of that and put it in front of the new product development team and just continually make tweaks, you know, until we get to scale where, you know, even then, you know, sometimes we're making tweaks to, you know, make sure it's really hitting what we want to hit or tweaks that we know we need to make to make it more feasible on scale. Yeah. And then how do you know that you've got something that's ready to go prime time and it's ready to, to go big? I mean, to me, it kind of all starts with just the hype that you feel internally. Um, yeah. King Crispy was kind of one of those brands that everyone just sort of rallied around. There was It was completely organic. Um, and you just kind of felt the buzz. And so I think that's where it all starts for me. And then that generally translates pretty well to, you know, our fans out there. So King Crispy, tell me more about this one. So this is a beer that was designed, uh, up in Portland by Jake and Jim, a traditional German style Pilsner that was made for the, uh, Bitburger Pilsner competition up in Portland. It was I think, something like six, uh, six to eight, uh, P and W breweries that entered it. And, King Crispy, before it was known as that, uh, won that competition uh, and and was judged by Bitburger folks as well as other brewmasters locally. And due to that, we then decided to bring it to uh, scale, uh, brew an 80-barrel batch of it, and just kind of put it out there and kind of see what the reception was. And it was incredible. It's it sold out incredibly fast from the tasting rooms. And so decided to brew it again when that batch has just recently become released. And so this was kind of our first foray into just doing this small batch sort of one-off style of thing to see how it goes. And it's been exciting because I think we've kind of found a new way to sort of establish potential new brands from this process. Just what everyone inside gets excited about. And then that excitement kind of extends out to, and then if it works, 
Yep. It Keep works. Going. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So King Crispy is that a, a new regular entry to the Deschutes lineup now, or uh, right now it's still small batch. Yeah. I think we we've only brewed it twice. I'm not sure if there's any plans to brew it uh, again this upcoming year. I think we might brew it again for the summertime, but past that, it's sort of up in the air. Which I mean, I kind of like. I think that scarcity piece. Uh, goes a long way. So I think if we can keep it somewhat small and uh, keep people happy, there's there's a balance to be struck there for sure. Yeah. So um, if you don't mind talking about it, can we talk a little bit about hard seltzer? Sure. Uh, you know, I know Inevitably. this is this is uh, it's something that's on the mind of a lot of brewers out there, and uh, and uh, brewers across the across the spectrum. Um, you know, it's from small craft brewers to large craft brewers, and I believe you know there's also a significant number of home brewers out there that are also really interested in. You know, just exploring it, even if it's not something they brew all the time, and mm-hmm. you know it's something that you know we nice to make for you know now and then for for special occasions or in that summertime when you just want something like that. Uh, you guys have released a new hard seltzer under the Modified Theory brand, and you guys went through a lot of testing and a lot of uh, you know work to kind of pull that together. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that development process and uh, you know how you why and how you ended up uh, bring it in the way that you do. As a fermented malt beverage, not necessarily a, 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 a seltzer per se, right. um, because it is it is malt based and not mm-hmm. just you know uh, sugar based. Right. Talk to me a little bit about uh, that, and then you know building you know kind of flavors and experimenting with flavors and finding ways to get flavors to express well in these things. Sure. Yeah. So exactly. You know, I would call it more of a yeah cocktail inspired uh, flavored malt beverage as opposed to hard seltzer, like you alluded to. And the reason we kind of decided to go that route is, I mean, the way I look at it is if, you know, if you think the craft beer scene is saturated, I mean, hard seltzer's got to be kind of getting there if you're just looking at sure. basically fermented sugar water and some sort of flavoring. Um, and so we really wanted to kind of fill a different niche where we're looking at, you know, more natural ingredients, real fruits and um, other things like that to sort of drive flavor while also maintaining a malt base that is more similar to sort of, you know, the beer process. But, uh, again, the, the pilot system was a huge asset while we were trying those things. Cause it was a lot of, a lot of ingredients and a lot of experimenting that we hadn't ever done before with things that were pretty unique anywhere from, uh, black limes to different warming spices to certain barks, uh, a lot of different stuff that we're working with. So, uh, that pilot brew house has allowed us to really um, develop those products relatively quickly and with pretty great confidence. So that's been fun to see, but yeah, we wanted to just make sure that we were delivering something that was a really, really bold and different as opposed to kind of what you're seeing out there typically. So for you guys, that then works just from a kind of standard mash process. And is it a very light barley wort or, uh, you know, how do yeah. you build a base for that? Yeah. Pretty light barley wort, uh, some wheat in there too, just to, you know, help a little bit with body because some of, you know, we're intending for some of these to be, uh, or at least there's an option to mix them with hard liquor. And so, yeah. you know, you don't want it to thin out too much, obviously, if you're going to be adding some liquor to it. So we put some things in there to build body as well. And then how do you, you know, kind of minimize the impact that, you know, I mean, obviously, bar, you know, malt, barley uh, wort tastes like barley wort yep. and then it tastes like beer, you know, yep, right. Um, what kind of, is there a filtering process that then happens after that to, or, uh, you know, are there specific, specific uh, kind of a yeast program that, uh, you know, minimizes esters and extra flavor, uh, you know, creation in that process. Yeah, definitely throw a clean yeast strain at it. Yeah. Um, nothing necessarily specific with filtration. I wouldn't say, I would say a lot of it 
comes down to, you know, there's there's a bit of a tartness to those products that kind of helps, you know, cover up a bit of that, what you would might call like a beer-like flavor. Yeah. Uh, and then again, it, I think a lot of it comes back to just the other types of special ingredients that we're, we're throwing at it to make sure that that's sort of the thing that catches you first uh, when you're drinking those types of beverages. Is there a color to them or are they, uh, you know, I mean, I know in that kind of product category, the the clear and sparkling kind of a thing, uh, yeah. you know, is big for consumers. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so they they are colored, um, and that was again another sort of strategic move on our part to differentiate ourselves and make it look make it a little bit more interesting. So, one of them is uh, Taraco Orange and Vanilla is is one of those modified theory brands, and that is very much orange. It's incredibly orange, not 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 beer like <laughs> yeah. orange. Yeah, uh, and then we have another product in development, sort of a. Uh, Pina Colada, Blue Hawaiian inspired beverage that it's been pretty interesting because I'm looking for a natural blue color is pretty much impossible as I found. Uh, But we've been working with uh, spirulina to try to deliver on a sort of turquoise color that you might find in the Blue Hawaiian cocktail. And it's been interesting learning about that, but we'll see if it's possible. No promises (laughs) yet, but uh, it's been fun. Well, trying to do it in a natural and, uh, yep. you know, kind of, uh, authentic way is, yeah, it's, uh, commendable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's maybe, uh, talk a little bit about sour beer, you know, obviously Deschutes plays in all of these kind of, uh, these kinds of categories and, and we won't talk about barrel aged beer here, even though that's a big part of what you do. Um, but let's talk about kind of, you know, more, uh, you know, kind of pre-boil, quick sour, kettle sour type, uh, you know, beers, which are a growing kind of category for you all. I had one over in the tap room, the almond oat. It mm-hmm. was almond oat sour on, yep. the, on the board right now. Um, you know, one of the things that you're actively, you know, playing with is kind of evaluating those acid, uh, you know, acids in these beers, looking at other opportunities for pulling in other types of acid, um, mm-hmm. you know. Obviously, in the beer world, lactic acid is the thing that everyone you know goes right. for. And um, you know, when you're talking about traditional sour, I mean, that's a result of that focus of traditional sour beer being on lactic acid, you know, uh, producing bacteria to kind of create that lactic acid profile. Right. But in the world of beverages, whether you're talking about wine with you know malic and tartaric acid, or whether you're talking about uh, you know citric acid in you know more uh, common juices and uh, mm-hmm. you know you know citrus fruit, um, you know, we there's there are a lot more acids than lactic acid out there that we can incorporate into beer. Talk to me a little bit about some of uh, the exploration that you've been doing in that kind of sphere. Yeah, so we've been playing around with all different types of acid. It all kind of just started on a benchtop scale. Uh, One of our brewers, James, was looking to make a tart, hazy IPA. Uh, and, you know, we looked at lactic, lactic acid and then we started thinking like, well, why are we, why are we only focusing on this? Just because, you know, we were bench topping. So we were just dosing straight up acid into these beers. Uh, and so we, we brought a bunch of different types of acids in house, malic, citric, yeah, winemakers, sort of acid blend and just ran a bunch of bench tops with it and then came up with a blend that we liked and sort of started exploring the different flavors that these acids can lend. And it sort of opened up this door of, you know, hey, here's this whole new ingredient pool that we had never even been thinking about previously. So uh, let's start experimenting. Um, And we found that, you know, they definitely deliver very different sort of acidity profiles than your standard sort of, you know, lactic, uh, lactic acid bacteria producing sours do. Um, For instance, with with a winemaker's acid blend, you know, 
analytically your TA may be the same as what you would see with a, a lactic acid, but uh, the, the acidity is much softer on the palate. So that was pretty cool to see. And, you know, that has applications and perhaps, you know, some sort of tart lagers or something along those lines that you might not necessarily call sour, but um, definitely can open up a new niche, I, I would think. That is an interesting way to kind of, you know, consider that, uh, you know, it's almost like thinking about hops bitterness and Mm -hmm. uh, then realizing that there are different qualities of hops bitterness and they don't all have to be a rugged and in your face bitterness. They can actually measure the same IBUs, but when they're added in different ways or used, created through hops with different lower alpha Mm -hmm. levels that that same level of ultimate testable bitterness may be perceived in different kinds of way. It seems to be the same kind of principle applied to acid that, uh, you know, pH is not a measure alone of how people, you know, sense that even, you know, uh, TA is not uh, an ultimate measure of how it's sensed. There are kind of qualitative differences when those acid, you know, uh, profiles that come from these different kinds of acids. Um, From a sensory perspective, uh, you know, is there anything besides just that softness, uh, you know, that you perceive out of these that's a little bit different? Yeah, I mean, from the limited experience that we have, I would say citric definitely delivers, you know, a sharper uh, sort of acidity, you know, think orange juice and kind of how that hits your palate. Right. Um, malic is a little bit uh, softer, almost kind of like a, a flatter acidity, if that makes sense at all. Like it yeah. doesn't doesn't hit you quite as sharply as citric does. And then, yeah, the winemakers, just sort of this really nice, uh, round, soft sort of acidity that kind of covers the whole palate. Well, and I guess those are going to express themselves in some Deschutes beers uh, down the road. I think you can maybe. look for them for sure. Yeah, yeah, certainly coming out of the pilot. So if you're ever in Bend and hit the tasting room, yeah, but yeah, yeah we'll yeah. see. Are there other projects uh, that you're working on that are you really excited about? Um, yeah, uh, you know, really. So I'm pretty excited about, like I alluded to that Sabro and 472 beer that we were doing uh, earlier on. And I'm pretty excited about that. It's again, just kind of pushing the boundaries is with uh, what we have done in the past with hops. And that's, that's exciting to me. And then um, looking perhaps down the road to some collaborations with wineries, utilizing that winemakers acid blends for sort of unexpected uh, uh, wine, beer hybrids and continuing down that road. And then also just our continued foray into, you know, driving flavor, like to, take hops and fruits and sort of marry them uh, into unique uh, styles of beer. For instance, that Strata Punch beer that you tried yesterday, um, learning more about how do you better use juice concentrates, pair those with hops and all that sort of thing. Let's talk a little bit about that now that you bring that up. Um, the, for a lot of brewers, the idea of adding fruit to beer has been based in puree, you mm-hmm. know, and for, for a lot of that and, and puree kind of being, well, first I should say, you know, whole fruit has been, uh, you know, there are certain, certain cadre of brewers that will right. only use whole fruit. And mm-hmm. then we've moved from whole fruit into pureed fruit because adding aseptic puree is generally, uh, you know, safer if you're not pasteurizing beer, you know, to make sure that you're going you're to create a product that's not going to continue to ferment and, uh, and have, you know, other, uh, or get sour mm-hmm. on you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, you mentioned that you found that, uh, in a number of kinds of, you know, uh, back-to-back tests, you all actually for certain fruits prefer, juice concentrates over, you know, puree or whole fruit. Um, talk to me a little bit about that kind of thing, that it's not just a, you know, category. We only like this over that. It's when it comes down to specific things, you like very specific products over others. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think you could even extend that to within 
certain categories. For instance, you know, there are more than one, you know, type of, let's say, pineapple juice concentrate. Right. Um, but yeah, it's certainly specific to the fruit that you're using as well as the intention that you're trying to get across and how much of that fruit character you sort of want to carry through. So, you know, juice concentrate, you're looking at pretty much anywhere from 60 to 70 bricks, which, you know, you probably don't necessarily want to back sweeten with something like that, especially right. if you're packaging and, you know, you're looking, you have live yeast in a, in a can or something. Um, so typically that, you know, we add that during fermentation or on yeah. the hot side to make sure we're fermenting some of those sugars out. Uh, and my experience with that is you have a little bit more delicate, but well integrated flavor of that fruit that you're putting into that beer versus a puree. If you're adding it post-fermentation, you're adding less sugar to the beer, but you're getting a very nice fresh fruit sort of character from it as fresh as you can without using whole fruit. Right. Um, but we've messed around with pineapple, cherry, uh, and, and uh, grape, and a bunch of different other blends. And I would say for the most part, what I've seen with those is just, yeah, you have that delicate sort of integrated balance of fruit. Are there sp- uh, specific fruits you know, that you find um, just uh, add, have an added punch when they're uh, uh, you know, added through that kind of fruit juice process versus something like puree? Um, I don't know if I've honestly done enough to know for sure, but okay. I would say, uh, I've, I've, I've seen that, uh, tropical fruits. So we've messed around a little bit with guava and pineapple, you know, you just get that brighter, just kind of in your face tropical note from the puree as opposed to the juice concentrate. Yeah, yeah. Um, something like grape is pretty nice as a juice concentrate because, you know, you typically, uh, want that to be a little bit softer yeah um so that was that was a good application for the juice concentrate how how do you guys manage like you know when you're talking about fruit aroma such a huge part of the you know a huge component to the expression of that mm-hmm. and you know naturally the you know fermentation process as you're re-fermenting out on fruit uh kicks off more co2 which pulls aromatics out of the beer and puts them off into, you know, headspace and blow off. Uh, you know, how do you, you know, that's the, whether it's hops or whether it's fruit, I mean, that's a, a giant challenge yep. for brewers to kind of maintain that aroma in the beer and not just lose all of those volatile aromatics to that re-fermentation process. You right. know, are there, are there ways that you all kind of, you know, keep that into the beer and help, uh, you know, uh, maintain that in the product? Yeah. I mean, it kind of, a lot of that I think kind of comes down to just point of addition. Um, uh, and so we haven't quite done it yet, but I would say, you know, with what we have used in juice concentrate, we've tried to add it towards the end of fermentation, perhaps at the free rise step. So, you know, we're almost, you know, we're two thirds of the way through fermentation, but we still have enough active yeast to chew down on those sugars and create alcohol while also maximizing sort of the fruit character and the volatiles that will stick around. Yeah. Yeah. We talked before, you know, about the kind of you know, philosophical, you know, approach and what it means for Deschutes to, you know, throw this pilot, uh, you know, up front and center to spend millions and millions of dollars on, you know, a absolute uh, uh, Ferrari of, uh, of uh, kind of test and pilot breweries. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about the, the, um, you know, how that kind of spirit of innovation and testing and iterating and improving kind of, um, you know, works throughout the kind of entire Deschutes organization. Yeah, I think that's sort of a good little microcosm of how we, you know, try to operate as a, as a company, the, the pilot plant that is. Um, 
and you know, we've been around since 1988 and we've been doing, you know, Mirror Pond, Black Butte, those sorts of things for a very long time. But to commit to an expense as large as the Pilot Brewery, uh, I think definitely sends a message that, you know, we're, we're not just going to rest on our laurels, you know, and we know that we need to continue to do things differently than we have in the past. So, I mean, you know, you can either keep down that road or you can sort of start um, messing around and, you know, finding your own identity through the products and the things that you create to then sort of dictate or sort of, you know, tell the market, hey, this is who we are. Uh, here's what we're going to offer you guys. Um, we hope you like it as opposed to just, you know, we're going to continue to um, continue to just rely solely on our, our core brands like Fresh Squeeze, like Black Butte. So we have we have that that line of products. And then we also are, you know, continuing to deliver on new products and coming out with them faster and faster every year, which has been pretty exciting to see. And uh, I think that's reflected in our brewing team and their desire to brew what they like to drink and also brew things that they haven't seen out in the market yet. And I think that's kind of where the key comes in is uh, not necessarily chasing those trends and doing your own thing and relying on emotion, passion, and gut instinct to come up with really what could be the next sort of disruptor in the industry. And it's not, and, and I mean, obviously that's a huge part of this. There's also that piece of in, iterating and improving on what we're, what we do, mm -hmm. you know, using these kinds of tools to, to, to ask those questions. Can we make this, a you know, can we improve our process a little bit? Yeah. Is there, you know, an ingredient that's going to hit what our goal is for this a little bit more than, than this other thing? Can we try and test that and not, you know, put a, a thousand barrel batch into a, a fermenter and then have it not work yeah. out. You know, no one wants to uh, end up in that kind of place. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so, so there is that constant question of, and, and I think it's a question all breweries ask, you know, always are asking of themselves, like, is our, is this beer that we've made, uh, meeting the expectations of what our consumers think of this brand is mm -hmm. now, you know, that consumer tastes shift and change. People taste things in different ways. Context changes, and so as that context changes, you know, naturally, you know, people, people's palates change yep. along with that. You know, does a beer change to go with them? Does a beer stay the same? If a beer stays the same, it starts tasting, you know, doesn't, doesn't um, psychologically hit people in the same kind of way. And so being able to kind of, you know, tweak and twist and, uh, you know, and adjust and say, hey, what if it's a little bit more like this? Let's try it and see. And, uh, you know, your pilot system kind of allows you also to to kind of iterate and improve on your existing beers. I shouldn't say improve because they're, they're yeah, they, they start great, mm -hmm. you know, and the idea is to keep them there. Yep. And so that they don't lose that kind of position with consumers. Um, you know, uh, so I imagine that's also a part of what you do over the course of 140 pilot brews. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. The production brands have definitely come to the pilot brew house. And I mean, we, are always looking at ways to, yeah, like you said, you know, make improvements or make things more consistent for, you know, any sort of product that needs. I think you kind of have to look at it nowadays. Like there's, you know, not a, not a hell of a lot that's off the table and you need to be kind of maintain that open mind for brands that have been around for a while, as well as brands that have never seen the light of day. So just constantly having that mindset of yes. And sort of to take from improv, right, you know, right. so to continue to just push the boundaries as well as make consistent quality beer cool cool well uh kyle i appreciate you talking with us on the yeah, podcast absolutely. today um before we go gnd chillers is ready to meet your challenge 
Kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. SS Brewtech has the knowledge and experience you need. And Captain Pabst Seabird IPA is now available exclusively in Wisconsin and Chicago. Um, what's the best place to experience this innovation and pilot brewing process for Deschutes Brewery? Uh, the best place to experience the innovation of the pilot brewery is our Ben Tasting Room, if you can make it out here. Um, not our Portland pub's doing some pretty good, cool stuff, along with our Ben pub. Um, but hoping to get a bunch of these small, what are now small pilot batches into a larger form and out uh, out across the country. Hopefully they'll be in store near you sometime soon. Yeah, hope yeah. so. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Kyle. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrewing.